So thank you again. As Andrew said, thanks for joining us. Uh, whether you're watching online at home, maybe you're catching up later, you're here with us in the room. We are so grateful to be able to do this. I think we take some of this for granted sometimes, right? Like we, if you've been in church for a while, you just Sunday morning is kind of just Sunday morning. You wake up and, and we come and we can sing and we can pray and we can learn. But what we just did is kind of the crux of what the church is. And so it, it just speaks to the, the necessary practice of what we do. Yes, it can become a Sunday that's like, hey, this is Sunday, this is what we do, and we just get up and we do it. And for some of us, we don't know how to almost process that differently than just this is what we do, but there's a life to this. And so when you have the ability to say this is a difficult moment and we can come around one another and love each other, that's, that's really, really, really special. And so I, I hope that that just resonates with everybody, that this would be something we can remember and, and continue to do um, for one another as we process life as a church. And as we've processed life as a church this year, uh, we've been going through the book of Luke. And so we started off the year saying hope has a name. That was where we started the conversation as we stepped into the book of Luke. Um, and we are now ending the year at this, with this, is uh, his name is Jesus. And so what, where we came up with this or why we're processing this is we would say in any situation, whether it's a health concern, whether it's a marital concern, whether it's what's going on with my kids, whether it's what's going on around the world, hope is the thing that we grab onto. And as followers of Jesus, we would say that Jesus is the hope of the world. That's what we unapologetically say as a church. And we would want other people to know that. And then so we said, you know, we understand the world is what it is and, and hope is something that can be elusive at times. And so we wanted that to be a focus for us this year, to say we're going to focus on this idea of hope, and we believe hope's name is Jesus. And so when we stepped into the book of Luke, that's what Luke wanted us to know. He wanted us to understand who Jesus was, what he taught, why he was here, and what his ultimate mission was. And so we've tracked through there. We are coming to the end of Luke. We're coming to the end of Jesus's life. And like I said last week, I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody who knew that their time was short or you got the opportunity to share wisdom with your kids or your grandkids or whatever, and you kind of just process and say, this is what I've seen. This is what I know. And and when you kind of get to the point where like rubber's meeting the road, the advice gets deeper. It gets, it gets more traction to it. And so Jesus, in his final few days, he's in Jerusalem. He's getting ready to go to the crucifixion. Uh, he's sharing this wisdom. He's processing and saying, this is what I want you to know. And so we're going to pick up our story today in Luke 21. Luke 21, we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. And before I dive in, I just want to let you guys know, this is not a light, happy, I'm going to go home and be like, wow, this was great kind of sermon today. So like I say, sometimes if you need another cup of coffee, go get one. It's going to be a little bit deep today. So lock in with me. I'm going to be as clear as possible. If I am not clear at all, there's always the follow along page, which you can use right now. But if you have questions, please send emails to me. That's fine. I would love to have the conversation. But today's conversation is going to get a little bit heavy at times, and I'm going to try and be as clear as possible. So let's jump in. Here's, here's how the stage is set for this. So verses 1 and 2 of Luke 21 say this, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. Okay, so let's just set the stage for what's happening. They're in the temple, and in the temple, there were these offering reception boxes or whatever you want to call them, things. Like we have in the back of the room, right? We have them on the wall. We have them at the main entrance. 
These were a little bit different, though, because when you come in, if you're going to give that way, you know, we usually use checks or paper money, whatever, like no one hears what you're putting in the offering box. Usually this was not the case in the temple. All of their money, right? Think about this. They didn't have online giving back then. They didn't have checking accounts. They couldn't write a check. They couldn't do any of that stuff. All of their money was coins. So what happens when you go and you drop coins into something? You hear it. So when, they, when the rich people were all coming and they were taking all of their coins and dropping them in the offering box, it was kind of like when you go to the bank and you take all your change and you drop all the money in so that you can get paper bills back. So people actually knew. It was kind of a sign of like how much you were giving by how loud your offering was. Everybody could hear it. Everybody knew what was going on. And if the amount of time it took your coins to go all the way in was longer than the amount of time it took my coins to go in, well, you gave more, so you were, you were much better off than me. You wanted to be heard. So Jesus, like what Luke tells us is Jesus is watching. All these rich people are coming up, plunk, 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 right? It's just like loud. And there's people giving and whatever. And then this widow comes by and she goes, plunk, plunk. That's it. And everybody hears it. And everybody knows it. And then he goes on in verses 3 and 4. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Now, this first statement's kind of weird, right? I tell you the truth, she, the widow, has given more. And the disciples are probably looking at him going, they, they didn't give, she didn't give more. Did you hear how much those other people gave? Like, she gave two pennies. That's what she gave. But he says, this was all she had. And she said, I'm going to give it back to God. Now, I'll be honest with you. If, if someone came in today and said, I have $10 left in my bank account, and I want the church to have it, I would talk that person out of it, honestly. I'd be like, first of all, no, keep your $10, right? And let me buy you lunch, okay? Like, that's how we would process this. But that's not, that's not how Jesus looks at this. He goes, look at what she did. This is what Jesus is watching. He's seeing all these people give, and then he goes, this widow gives everything she has. Now, this is not a giving conversation today, but it sets a very interesting stage for what the next part of the conversation is. Let's keep going in verses 5 and 6. It says, some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Do you see the contrast? The disciples are hanging out at the temple and they're looking at all the beauty of the temple. By the way, the the temple was beautiful. It had been started uh, about 10 to 15 years before this. It was, it was going around the time when Jesus kind of got left there as a kid. So 20, 15, 20 years, somewhere around there, they were working on this. And we know from, from history that there were ornate decorations on the walls. One of the walls was actually just gold, like it had been gold-plated. It was a beautiful place, and it was massive. The Temple Mount itself, which is, by the way, still there today, is massive, And so they're standing there, and they're looking at all the beauty of the temple, and Jesus is watching this widow give two pennies. And he's noticing that, and they're noticing the temple. And Jesus interjects here and says, By the way, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. This is not a throwaway statement. This is not Jesus saying, uh, the place is going to be demolished, and by the way, yeah, not a stone. Like, this is not hyperbole. This is literal. Not a stone will be left on top of another. By the way, this is a massive thing to say, because these stones weighed over 500 tons. 
This was, in, this was a huge thing to say for Jesus, that no stone would be left on top of another. Going on in verse 7, this obviously draws a response from the disciples. It says, teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? What sign will you show us that these things are about to take place? Now, here's where we dive into the deep stuff. So I'm just going to warn you, we're going to get a little deep for a while. I'm going to read a section that's kind of longer, okay? So if you want to follow along, I would encourage you to do that, whether it's in your Bible, it's on the follow-along page, whatever. We're going to read for a while, and then I'll come back and we'll have the conversation. So verses 8 and 9, it says this, He replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and saying the time has come, but don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Verses 10 and 11. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. There will be famines and plagues in many lands. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. 12 and 13. But before all of this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me, verses 14 and 15. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. 16 and 19, even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you, and everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. 20 to 21. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of the destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out. Those out in the country should not return to the city. Verses 22 to 23. For those will be the days of God's vengeance. And the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. For there will be disaster in the land and great anger against his people. Verse 24. They will be killed by the sword and sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles has come to an end. Lots of stuff here. Kind of have to pause and go. What is Jesus talking about? I'm going to make a very profound statement, okay? Here it is. End times conversations are hard. It's difficult. Jesus goes into this vein of here's what's going to happen. Here's what's to come. Here's all these things to expect. Here's what's going to go on. And we start to think about this idea of end times. And by the way, everybody is kind of drawn to this conversation. Not just people who are followers of Jesus, but people who don't know Jesus are also very intrigued by the idea of what's going to happen at the end of the world. Movies like Armageddon, The Day After Tomorrow. We could go on forever on these movies where it's like the end of the world is coming. What do you do? How do you handle it? What does it look like? All of that stuff. And Christians also jump into this, right? If you were alive in the 90s, you maybe you read the Left Behind series. I read a bunch of the, like, the little kid versions of Left Behind series. So we get into these spaces of entertainment, and we go, what's going to happen? And we're drawn to this conversation. And part of the reason we're so drawn to it is we don't know what to do with it. Where is it going to go? How is it going to happen? Asteroids, Ice Age, whatever. Like, how's it, are there going to be zombies? People want to ask all these questions. Like, what's going to happen 
in the end times. And even from a biblical perspective, as we lean into scripture, this is a difficult conversation to have. In fact, I'll tell you this, right? It was hard for me because what I do when I study sometimes is I'll get my commentaries and I read and I do stuff. And then I have a handful of pastors. I'll go, I wonder if they preached on this. And I'll go listen to them, not to steal their stuff, but to just learn from all different perspectives. Very few of them have had conversations about this passage and the next section of passage that's coming because it's difficult to know what to do with this stuff. And here's what I think is true, okay? Some things about the end times we feel certain of, and some things are still very unclear. Notice I didn't say some things about end times we are absolutely certain of. There could be some things, but at the same time, some of the stuff you're reading when you're looking at end times material, like Daniel and Revelation and this portion of scripture, there's still some stuff there that you're like, is this literal or is this not? And by the way, there would be different perspectives on this throughout Christianity. Some people would say, we're in this section of time. Some people would say, I'm expecting this to happen. Some people would say, I'm expecting that to happen. And they all love Jesus. And if you said to them, what's the one way to God? They go, through Jesus because he died and rose again for me and I'm a sinner. So we would all go, that's exactly right. And then we all go, what happens in the end times? And there'd be 15 different observations and 15 different ideas. It's very difficult to process this. And sometimes, here's what happens. Sometimes we get in the weeds on this stuff and we let it get too much in the way. So here's what I want to see. First of all, before we dive into this and have this conversation fully, some of this we just don't understand. We're going to do our best. We want to do our best to look at Scripture and say, what does it teach us? And we want to find out what's true and what's not. But some of it we've got to hold with an open hand and just go, we're trying to follow Jesus. That's the most important thing. And when we get there, we'll get there. So there's two kinds of ways I want to look at the passage that we're, ha- we're looking at today. The, the first section we just read is the first part. There's a second part that's coming, and we're gonna, there's, there's, it's very hard to find uh, people that agree on all of this stuff. So I'm going to do my best to say this is how I think we understand it. This is the best way to get it. You might disagree. That's okay. I might, two years from now, might read something else and go, I think I disagree. Like, it's just one of those things we're going to do our best with, and here's how we get there. So here's what I know Jesus says. Because this first section of the passage, I believe, is mostly geared towards the disciples. Why do I believe that? Here's, here's a couple reasons why. Because he says to them that you will be persecuted, and you will be taken before the rulers and governors, and you'll have to give an account. If we look at the rest of Scripture, we look at the book of Acts, we look at the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, we see that actually happen. The disciples do receive persecution. They are put in jail. They do get taken before men. So Jesus is talking specifically about this to them. Now, here's the other thing that's true. We know that the destruction of the temple that Jesus is talking about did happen in the year 70 AD. So what happened was the Israelites decided they wanted to rebel against the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was still over them. The Roman Empire didn't like that, as you could imagine, and they decided to come in with an iron fist, and they just leveled the city. They just took it. They said, if you're going to rebel, we're going to put you in your place. And so the temple was destroyed. And the temple mount that exists today, by the way, was leveled, and it kind of stayed that way until the 600s. It was a while until it, it got fixed again. So we know that the temple actually did get destroyed and some of the disciples were there because we believe that John wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation after AD 70, okay? I know I'm getting real nerdy for a minute. We'll get back into the other stuff soon, okay? But here's why, this is why we have to understand the context, right? So 
we believe John and Revelation were actually written after AD 70. So let's just think about that for a minute. If Jesus is talking about the end times, but John is still writing Revelation after AD 70, then some of this portion of scripture seems to have been, disciples, this is what you're going to go through. So let's take that section first and let's say, what can we learn from the disciples or from Jesus' message to the disciples with this passage of Scripture. Here's the first thing Jesus says. He gives a few warnings. He says, first of all, don't believe false teachers. He says, there's going to be people that come. They're going to claim things. They're going to claim to be me. They're going to claim the time is coming. And he says, don't believe them. If they're claiming something that doesn't line up with what I've taught you, do not believe them. And by the way, if we look back at history, we can see this happening. There are times people show up and say, I'm the new leader. God sent me. God gave me a new revelation. Here's what you're to live out. Here's what you're to know. And I want you to worship this way and do things. And these cult leaders will come in and say, I've got a new message. Jesus says, don't listen to them. You will know it's me. If it doesn't go, if it goes against what I'm teaching you, do not believe them. So he says to the disciples, don't believe false teachers. The same thing is true for us. We look at teachers We look at leaders, by the way, do this with me. I'm inviting it. I'm up here preaching and you're saying, I don't know where it says that in scripture. You should be doing that. Ask the question, dig in, hold me accountable. No one that opens the Bible from a stage should ever be um, above accountability. So we want you to look at scripture and say, how are we seeing this? What's going on? So he goes, don't believe these false teachers. Look at scripture. Are we teaching what's actually from scripture? And Jesus says, when someone comes along and teaches something different, says they're me when they're not. Do not listen to them. So first warning is don't listen to false teachers. Here's the second thing. He says, don't panic. By the way, this is in reference to wars and insurrections and all that kind of stuff. Sounds like today, doesn't it? We haven't said anything publicly about what's going on. Obviously, atrocities, terrible things going on in Israel. And we pray for those people that are struggling through all of that stuff right now. But here's what I want us to get, right? We, when we see that, we don't just brush it off like, oh, they're in a war again, or oh, this is happening. Or like, like, No, our hearts break for those people. But what Jesus says is, don't panic. He says, you, you know me. I'm telling you these bad things are coming. These wars are going to happen. There's going to be people. And, and why do those things happen? Because they don't know Jesus. If we know Jesus, and we, and this is true for us too, not just people that are at war, but just people in life. Like if we lived out what Jesus taught us and we loved our neighbor, those things wouldn't happen. And so we look at that and we go, okay, we understand what's going on. And Jesus says, when you see all these bad things, do not panic. And here's what I would say. If we are followers of Jesus, like I said, don't brush it off. But we, we never have to look at the world around us and freak out. It's bad. It's not good. We don't, we're not happy about it. We pray against it. We pray for healing. We pray for peace. We pray for all these things. But we don't need to freak out. Jesus says to the disciples, you're going to see all this bad stuff. Don't panic. And then he says this. He goes on and he says, don't worry. We see this a few times in scripture, right? If you've read scripture for a while, like you see this idea of don't worry. Don't have anxiety. Don't and he says this, by the way, God sa- or Jesus says this. In reference to, he says, you're going to be taken to jail for believing in me. You're going to have to go before these rulers for believing in me. You're going to have to do all these things. And he goes, when you go before them, don't write a speech before you get there. You don't have to sit down and go, what's my argument going to be? How well am I going to polish this and figure this out? He goes, I will give you the words to say. 
So he says, don't believe false teachers. He says, don't panic. He says, don't worry. Why? Because Jesus is telling the disciples, I got you. I got you. So how do we understand this? This is a message to the disciples. But if we're listening in and we're going, what did Jesus say? We can apply this to us. Yeah, we shouldn't listen to false teachers. Yeah, when, the, when these bad things are coming and, and, and it's hard and we don't know what to do with it and it's awful and we're watching the news and it's bad stuff, what do we do with it? Don't panic. God's in control. And then he says, don't worry. Why? Because I got you. Jesus says, don't worry. I got you. I'm in control. I know what's going on. Don't freak out. I got you. So when we see these difficult things, we, we have a hard time and we, we don't know what to do with it, don't freak out. Don't listen to false teachers. Don't panic. Don't worry. God's in control. And we can take peace and just say, this is these, what Jesus is describing is our hopeless situations. And we know from Scripture, we shouldn't look at these situations as those who have no hope. We look at these situations as people who do have hope, and then we step into these situations and say, we're going to be the representation of Jesus or the representation of hope in these moments. So when we see these things, we go, we got we to gotta get Jesus in there. We got to have a conversation about Jesus. We need people to know about Jesus so that they understand the hope that we know. And, and one of the things that gets me, just to like show you a little bit of like a pastor's heart, is like, when people who know Jesus and are supposed to have hope in that, they freak out like people who have no hope. And I go, why? We, got, we know. We know we have hope in Jesus. And when we don't reflect that to the world, they can't see him. And so we don't worry. We don't freak out. We don't believe false teachers. All right, so here's the next part of the passage. This part of the passage, pastors refuse to preach on. They'll skip over it. And I'll be really honest with you. I'm being honest with you today. I wanted to. Just being honest with you. Because number one, it's hard. And number two, it is, it is probably, I'm not, being, I'm not being like facetious. I'm not, I'm not blowing this up. I think it's the most difficult part of the New Testament to understand, period. Because Jesus says something here that gets us a little bit like, what? And it's actually leveraged by people who don't follow Jesus to say, see, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. So here we go. We're going to jump in. I'm going to share my thoughts and kind of help us process this to the best I can. So Luke 21, verses 25 and 26 is what it says. And there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And, there, and here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil. Perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides, people will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Verses 27 and 28. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. Verses 29 to 31. Then he gave them this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, uh, when leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, this is where it gets very difficult. Okay, 32 and 33. Here's what it says. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until though these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. 
So if you're not feeling the tension yet, here's the problem. Jesus tells us all of these things are going to happen, including the destruction of the temple, the persecution of the, of the disciples and those that are there. And he lays out all these other things, problems and the sun and moon and, and these wars and insurrections and all this stuff. And then he seems to say in verse 32, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until these things have taken place. Read that at face value. What it seems to be saying is those people that are standing there listening to Jesus will still be present when he returns. Now that's problematic because many of us would say and believe Jesus hasn't returned yet. And like I said before, it seems as though when John wrote Revelation, it was after AD 70, right? And, and so when the temple we know was destroyed, so if John's still writing and this, he's saying the second coming's still happening, but we're here and it hasn't happened yet, and Jesus is saying it wouldn't happen, it would happen with this generation of people and it hasn't happened yet, Jesus is wrong. Problem. Jesus can't be wrong. Or Jesus wasn't who he said he was. This is the verse where people will come back and say, see, this is how we know Jesus wasn't really God or didn't really tell the truth or didn't know what he was saying because we can point to this and say, we know he didn't come back before now or before this group of people was gone. Now, I'll be honest with you. There are some people, and maybe you're in this camp, and that's fine. There are some people who do believe Jesus came back around AD 70 and were living after the second coming. I personally don't take that stance, but it's okay. That's, we can have that conversation another time. But here's what I want us to understand. Even if we believe, let's just say, the second coming hasn't happened yet, and we've got to figure out a way to work through this. Is Jesus wrong? Did he really not say, or was he really wrong in what he said? Or are we understanding this incorrectly? How do we figure this out? And here's what I would say. Anytime, 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 we get to Scripture and we go, I don't know what to do with this. There's two questions I want you to ask. Here's the two questions. What do we know about Jesus? And what is the context? So here's why we ask the first question. Let's go with this for a minute. And we go, okay, Jesus seemingly said this and he seemed to be wrong. What do we know Jesus was right about? Here's the big one. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again three days later. And he did it. He wins. <laughs> Anyone that can do that is incredible. By the way, in so doing, he fulfilled prophecies from thousands of years before. And we also know, just within this passage, that he was right about the temple being destroyed, and he was right about the disciples receiving persecution and being thrown in jail and having to go before rulers and people and defend why they're a follower of him. So we look at the rest of what Jesus has done, and we say, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. And then we get to one sentence that if you took it out of the New Testament, we wouldn't have any problem. But this one we seem to have a little bit of an issue with. But when you look at the rest of his life and the rest of what he got right, it leads me to go, okay, well, if all of this was right, including him saying he's going to die and rise again three days later and actually accomplishing it, then maybe we're the ones who are missing something and not him. 
When all the rest of it goes, here's what it points to. Jesus seems to fulfill it all, figure it out. And then we have one sentence. We go, we don't know what to do with. We probably have to go, what do we do with that sentence? And not, let's throw out Jesus. We also look at this and say, what's the context? Well, some of the context is the fact that he got the rest of this prophecy. We can actually see it happening in history. So we know that happened. But we also have to say, we look at the rest of context, and we look at what I said about Revelation and about John. And we have to look at what was said in Daniel. So when you look at Daniel, and we go to those passages, and we go to Revelation, we go to those passages. By the way, we don't have time to do that today. That would take me a whole class in seminary, okay? We can do that one day if you really want to, but I don't have time today. So... We can go to all those things and we go, look at Daniel, look at Revelation, look at this, what Jesus said, and go, what do we know about all of these things? We have to put it all into context and we say, what happens with this? There's a few clues, I think, that happen in this second half of the passage that lead me in a certain direction. And this is what I would say is the reason for this part of the conversation with Jesus. Way back at the very end, of the passage we read in verse 24. I'll just read it for you. It says this, And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. And so Jesus introduces this idea called the period of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, up until this point in history, the people of God were the Jews, right? They were the ones who were the, they were the people. They were getting all the revelation. They were taught to stay in their, within their lane because they weren't supposed to get involved with the Gentiles. Well, everything changes in the New Testament. Jesus comes, breaks that wide open, and says, Gentiles are welcome. And so we would say that there's a time that's called the time of the Gentiles, and, and that there's this conversation happening where everybody and anybody can be a part of this group, right? The, the gospel is not only to the Jews, but it is to the Gentiles as well. Okay, so he, he introduces this idea, this new time frame. And then, as he starts to continue in verse 25, something happens in his focus. Remember, everything in the first passage was focused on Jerusalem. The temple will be taken down, and it was very focused on Israel. Temple will be destroyed, the disciples will be persecuted. All, the church will have to figure out. Okay, so that's all very much like this. He's looking very closely at Jerusalem and Israel. Then what happens in 25? And it says, and there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And on the earth, nations will be in turmoil. All of a sudden, now we broaden from Israel to the nations. The scope just goes whoop, like this. Gets much larger. Then going on. Uh, it says in verse 27, then, the man, uh, then everyone will see the Son of God coming down a cloud and power and great glory. So when all those things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. Now, when he was talking about Jerusalem, he was talking about destruction. He's saying people that are in Jerusalem need to get out. People that are outside Jerusalem need to not come back. He's saying this is bad. But then he's saying when these things are happening, now look. Now you want to look to the heavens because salvation is coming. So again, this is a very different perspective. He goes from destruction and judgment and then says, when these things are coming, now you say salvation is near. He gave, and then he gives him the illustration. And then when, uh, in, in verse 33, after he says about the generation will not pass, he says, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. It's interesting to me that he, if he was still talking about specifically Jerusalem and Israel, he would say probably Jerusalem and Israel will, will pass away, but my words will never disappear. No, he has now again broadened that scope and says heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will not. So seemingly in this passage, there was a first part of the conversation that was very localized. 
Now we get very broad. And what I would say, the way we understand this is, when he uses the phrase generation in verse 32, he's talking about this generation time of the Gentiles. So when you're, you're saying that, generation, by the way, the word there that's in Greek in, and used in generation does not just simply have to mean a group of people for a span of 40 years. It can mean any group of people. It can mean a, um, a group of people from a certain country. It can mean a genealogy. It can mean a few different things. We're not reading too much into that. It can mean multiple things as you translate it. So when you think about that, you go, okay, so what he's saying is the time of the Gentiles will not come to an end before these things take place. Now we can say, okay, Jesus was talking specifically to the disciples, and when he broadens the scope, he's saying there's something else that's going to come after that, and we can look at that and say, we would see ourselves as the time of the Gentiles, as a bunch of Gentiles, a lot of us are Gentiles, right, just sitting in a church together. We would say this is the time we find ourselves in, and that generation will not come to an end before these things happen. Now, there can be a lot of questions there, like I said. Write me an email if you want. You are welcome to. But I'm getting low on time, and we got to keep going. All right? So here's what I want us to do. Here's a big question, okay? How do we respond to end times conversations? Because these are hard. We, we could, and here's what I don't want us to do. I know I set it up this way. Here's what I don't want us to do. Well, that's hard, so I don't have to worry about it. That's why when I got to that passage and I went, man, I really don't want to dig into this. This is hard. I went, no, like, that's completely the wrong idea. Like, we need to dig into the hard stuff. And I want you guys to know, how do we figure this out? And how do we lean into it? How do we answer difficult questions? So the, the question is, how do we respond? When we see these conversations, not just in movies and TV, but when we see them even in Scripture, what do we do? And here's my answer to that. I think that the end times should motivate us. Should motivate us. And here's why. If we go back to verses 12 and 13, here's what, here's what verse 12 says. Okay, and we just read this. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. There is not much worse things we could think would happen as followers of Jesus than to be thrown in jail because we simply believe in God. You start having those conversations. We, I've heard people say this in our culture. You know what they're going to do? They're going to throw us in jail pretty soon. They, get, they start to get like riled up about it. And it's like, this would be so bad. And Jesus tells the disciples, this is what's coming. Like it's going to happen. But then he says this in verse 13. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. How many of us, let's just pause, like process in your own mind. How many of us would go kicking and screaming into jail if they arrested us in Jesus' name? And what Jesus says is, no, you know what? It's going to happen, and you know what? You need to see it as an opportunity to tell them about me. He goes, you're going to have more people to talk to. You're going to have rulers that are making decisions about you. You're going to have judges that are making decisions about you. You're going to have people in prison next to you that are going to need to know me. And your opportunity in those moments is to say, let me tell you about Jesus. Just imagine this for a minute. You, I, okay, I'll tell you a really fast story. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. I have been uh, in court one time for a ticket I got, okay? Not telling the story right now, but it's happened. So I was literally there. It was in Virginia. Again, don't ask. I'll tell you later. In Virginia. The guy in front of me went to jail for three years. I was freaking out. That's not the way that's supposed to go when you get a ticket, okay? So here's what happened. I've been in that moment, and I saw a bunch of people go, this was not me. I didn't do it. I'm not, the, right? How do people respond when they are in in a space where they have to defend themselves. It was not me. I didn't do it. 
What would be the difference for followers of Jesus that end up in front of a judge for being followers of Jesus? And they look and they go, judge, I don't know what to tell you. I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. And I'm never going to stop. And he loves you too. That's a different conversation, isn't it? And everyone around that's listening or everyone that's hearing you, or if there's a jury or whatever there is, right? The judge goes, man, this person's different. Even if he hates Christians, he's different. He goes, this is your opportunity And this is what Jesus does. Jesus often takes a hopeless situation and provides a hope-filled solution. Everything that Jesus says in this passage is not good. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be brought before rulers and have to give an account. There's going to be wars. There's going to be insurrections. There's going to be famines. There's going to be signs in the sky. There's going to be people freaking out. He goes, all this stuff is bad. And what does he say? Just don't listen to false teachers. Don't panic. Don't worry and take it as an opportunity to share with people who I am. He says, you take those hopeless moments and you turn them into hope-filled solutions. That's what we're called to do. Jesus doesn't say wallow. He doesn't say fight. He doesn't say get angry. He says, you've got the opportunity. And here's what I, here's what I think is so true. Your and my convictions about the end will determine our actions in the present. What we believe is true about the end times, what's coming, will determine what we do now. And there are times where I see bad, there's bad things happen in the news, right? And you see people post or whatever, and they say, come Lord Jesus. And I get it, right? We go, this is hard, (laughs) stressful, frustrating. I want Jesus to come now, so I don't have to deal with this anymore. And I share that sentiment many times too, but here's what I also feel. Whenever we say that, and if you want to say that, I'm not making you feel bad. I'm just saying this way I process it. Whenever we say that, we say, hasten the day for those that don't know him to not know him. Instead of saying, give me one more chance to tell them about Jesus. And what we believe is going to happen in the end times will drive what we do now. If we believe there are going to be people that don't know him when the time comes to an end. What do we do about it? And this isn't a moment where we go, oh, there's so many people, I can't tell everyone. You're right, we can't tell everyone. But we can do for one what we wish we could do for many. And there are people that we have the opportunity to say, I don't know where you're at on this. I have this hope I want you to know, and I want you to know Jesus. So if he does come back tomorrow, you're right there with me, flying up to him. I want you to know. I want to go back really brief. I want to go back to that lady <laughs> at the beginning of this conversation. Remember her? We talked about her like, I don't know, a, lo- a long time ago now. Verses 1 and 2 of 21. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. Verses 3 and 4. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Do you know what, the, what she didn't do? She didn't give in to the warnings Jesus said. She didn't believe teaching that would say she should hold on to that and not give it back to God. She didn't believe that she needed to panic when things were going bad. I mean, she's a widow and it's her last few coins. This is not... In this case, it doesn't seem a parable. This isn't Jesus saying this is just a story. This is what we believe is they were watching this happen, and this is how Jesus responds. 
And she puts her last two pennies in, and she doesn't worry. She just goes, God's got me. And Jesus then, as he watches this happen, right, he launches into the conversation we just had. Why? I think because this widow had the correct perspective. She goes, I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I have full trust in God. And when I have full trust in God, what I believe the end is, which is that Jesus is in control and I'm fine, I'm just going to give it over to him and let him do with it what he needs to do. That's it. Not going to freak out. Not going to worry. He's got me. You know, I think, I think it's interesting that sometimes you don't tell people what's coming because you don't want them to freak out. You ever been in that situation? Like you, you realize it's going to be bad or it's worse than it seems and people are looking at you and they're saying, what's going on? How bad is it? And you just kind of go, oh, it's not that bad. Or you kind of like play it down because you go, the panic that you're going to have right now is not actually going to help. So I'm going to kind of move past that and just kind of let you live in blissless silence right now. And there are other times where we prepare Like when we were in school and we did fire drills and we said there's going to be moments where there might be an emergency and we have to know how to react. You warn someone about bad situations when their actions can make a difference. Jesus could easily have simply said, I'm going to come back one day and you guys should be ready and gave no information about what that was going to look like. Instead, Scripture gives us a bunch of information about what it's going to look like when Jesus returns because he wants us to be ready and he wants us to do something with it. Not to just live in blissful silence or read the Left Behind books and go, that's fun entertainment. I don't want to think about that anymore. You give people the opportunity to respond when their actions can make a difference. And that's what Jesus does. So here's my final question. How should you or I be living today in light of what we know is coming? How should we? Do we have the faith of the widow? It says, I don't know what's coming. Like, this, this is bad, a bad situation. This is not good. But I'm giving it to God. He's got me. Do we have the attitude of, that, the, that Jesus was telling the disciples to have? And ultimately they did. Many of them willing to go to jail, thrown in jail for it. They would not give up. And many of them, they'd get thrown in jail and they'd walk back out and they'd go, I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing. Put me in jail again. I don't care, right? Because Jesus says it's my opportunity. So are we living like we say, the end is coming? Jesus says, don't freak out. But know you've got the opportunity. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to use it? How are you going to process it and use it as motivation to show up when bad things happen? We get the privilege, honestly, of like looking around saying, yeah, the world is a crazy place. And we get the privilege of saying, but my soul is secure because we know Jesus. The question is, are we going to share that with others? Are we going to leverage that and say, I want people to know the hope and the peace that I have? Or are we going to freak out, worry, panic, all that stuff? We've talked a lot about our foundation being on Jesus. When your foundation is on Jesus, all that stuff can happen in our peripherals. I'm not shaking. I'm good. What does that look like? How does that need to change in the way we speak to others, the way we interact with people, the way we post online, the way we handle our stuff, the way we are at work or school or whatever? 
How does it need to change? If we know that it's coming, how does it change the way we live today? And I would say that we don't worry, we don't panic, and we simply be that reflection of hope to a world that needs it so badly. Let's pray together. Jesus, like I said before, one of the hardest passages to process, to understand, to be able to put into perspective. And yet in the midst of it, we can see this hope and this this opportunity that you say we have. And we can, we can look around and we can see the world and, and, and the wars and the, all the stuff that just happens. And we look at that and we go, this is so difficult. What do we do? God, what are you doing? Lord Jesus, come. And we, we look at that and we pray and our hearts break and all of that. And we just say, but would you give us the opportunity to use it? whether it's in front of judges, whether it's in front of family, whether it's whatever, that we would see it as an opportunity to be a representation of the hope that you are. God, I pray that that would be what sinks down deep in us today and that we would live as those who have hope, not as those who don't, as we eagerly await your return. In Jesus' name.